Mark chapter 9, uh, if you've been around the last couple of weeks, we've been uh, focusing on this period of time when uh, Jesus is really preparing his disciples for his eventual death on the cross. They're making their way. They're going to make their way. They're far up in the northern region, Caesarea Philippi. They're going to make their way eventually down to Jerusalem where he would be crucified. But he takes his three closest disciples, Peter, James, and John, takes them up on what we call the Mount of Transfiguration, a high mountain. There he was transfigured before them. And then they started, they came down off of that mountain. Last week we talked about a conversation he had with the disciples when they asked him about the scribes talking about the coming of Elias or Elijah. And now he comes down off of that mountain and he meets up with the rest of the disciples. When he meets them, it wasn't just the nine disciples, the twelve minus the three that had been with him, but there was a great crowd, a multitude of people, and there was a great commotion. And in that crowd, there was a father whose son was in the worst kind of spiritual condition. And we're going to focus on that today. Let's stand together as we read, and I'll direct your attention in Mark chapter 9 to verse 14. It says, And when he came to his disciples, he saw a great multitude about them. And the scribes questioning with them. This is the scene that that Jesus and Peter, James, and John uh, came to. Verse 15 says, And straightway all the people, when they beheld him, when they saw Jesus and recognized him, were greatly amazed, and running to him, saluted him. And he asked the scribes, What question ye with them? And one of the multitude answered and said, Master, I have brought unto thee my son, which hath a dumb spirit. And wheresoever he taketh him, he teareth him, and he foameth, and gnasheth with his teeth, and pineth away. And I spake to thy disciples that they should cast him out, and they could not. He answered him, And saith, Jesus is answering, this is what he said, O faithless generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I suffer you? Bring him unto me. And they brought him, the troubled boy, young man, unto him, unto Jesus. And when he saw him, straightway the spirit tear him. And he fell on the ground and wallowed, foaming. And he asked his father, Jesus asked his father, How long is it ago since this came unto him? And he said, Of a child. And oft times it hath cast him into the fire and into the waters to destroy him. But if thou canst do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Jesus said unto him, If thou canst believe, all things are possible to him that believeth. And straightway the father of the child cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe. Help thou mine unbelief. When Jesus saw that the people came running together, he rebuked the foul spirit, saying unto him, 
Thou dumb and deaf spirit, I charge thee, come out of him and enter no more into him. And the spirit cried and rent him sore and came out of him, and he was as one dead, insomuch that many said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he's come into the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could not we cast him out? And he said unto them, This kind can come forth by nothing but by prayer and fasting. Don't you just love the Bible today? What a magnificent book. What a wonderful record of the life of Jesus and his dealing with people. I just want to point out and emphasize a phrase before we pray in verse 23 where Jesus said this, If thou canst believe, all things are possible to him that believeth. I want you to think about that phrase today, all things are possible. Isn't that amazing? There's nothing that God cannot do. All things, not most things, some things, all things are possible. All things. Most of us could think of something or someone or some situation right now that we would wonder, is there any hope for this situation? But I just want to remind you that all things are possible. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you today for your word. Please bless as we study it together, as we apply it to our life. Help us to be focused on what you have to say to us through the word of God. Help us not to be doubters, not to be skeptics, not to be scoffers. Help us, Lord, just to be simple believers. And we'll thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Several things about this passage today that I want us to look at. So it's a lengthy passage. There's a lot of stuff in it. And, uh, but I just want to kind of categorize it into several thoughts. And the first one that I want us to just uh, dwell on for a little bit is this. And that is the, the terrible control that evil can have on people. We have a great picture of it here in the Bible. The terrible control. There, there was a man in this crowd that brought his son to Jesus for help. In verse 17, he didn't say, I brought him to your disciples. He said, I have brought unto thee my son. Jesus, of course, has been away. He and Peter, James, and John have been up on the Mount of Transfiguration. The disciples were here at the, in the lower elevation. This man had heard about Jesus and brought him, I'm assuming... To see, he brought his son to be with Jesus, but Jesus wasn't there. But we see the terrible condition he's in. Luke tells us this little bit of tidbit of information that this was this man's only son. If there's any son, he'd be troubled, but this was his only son. Just imagine today, and if you're a parent, you can kind of imagine this. Imagine the heartache of this parent and the suffering of this son. Out of control, demon-possessed, um, he brought him to Jesus, and it says in verse 18 that when he spoke to the disciples that they should cast him out, they could not. So the disciples couldn't help him. He was, he was, he was in such a state, and they were in such a state, that they just could not help him. We are left to our imagination to wonder 
how they tried to help him, how many times they tried to help him, how many of them, the nine of them, might have tried to help him. In my mind, I can assume that several of them probably prayed for him, laid hands on him, rebuked the devil in him. They could not help him. The Bible is very detailed about this young person's spiritual bondage. In verse 17, he says, I brought unto thee my son, which hath a dumb spirit. He's not able to speak. And, and then down in verse 25, it says, uh, thou, when Jesus rebuked the spirit, he says, thou dumb and deaf spirit. So he, he was not only able to speak, he wasn't able to hear, and he was being tormented. These This devil was just tormenting him. What graphic language in verse 18. He teareth him. This evil spirit tears him. He's foaming. He's gnashing with his teeth. He's pining away. He's withering away. He's dying. What a condition for this father to witness his son in this terrible predicament. Matthew chapter 17, as well as Luke, also records this incident. But Matthew 17 says this, that the father said, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is a lunatic and sore vexed. He's a lunatic. He's out of control. He's out of his mind. And this evil spirit had control of him. He wasn't just, he wasn't just sort of bothered or oppressed by this spirit. The spirit controlled him. It, it threw him around. And it didn't want to release him. Verse 20 says... Uh, when they brought him, brought this boy into Jesus, and when he saw him, straightway the spirit tear him. As soon as he laid eyes on Jesus, the spirit tear him. He fell on the ground. He wallowed foaming. In other words, this spirit had control, and he didn't want to release his control. He had his prey, and he didn't want to turn him loose. Jesus asked, how long has this been going on? And he says, since his childhood. And we don't know how old he was at this time. We don't need to know how old he was, but he's had this since his childhood. And this, this devil is trying to destroy him. Look at, that's the language of verse 22. Oft times it hath cast him into the fire and into the waters to destroy him. You know, demonic possession is very common in the New Testament. We know that from reading the Bible. We've, we've already covered that some in the Gospel of Mark, going through the Gospel of Mark. Remember the demonized man of Gadara who lived among the tombs, who cut himself. We find it throughout the Scripture where these, these devils would speak out of people. These devils were tormenting people. And you may wonder, maybe you've never thought about it, these de- who, are, who are these devils, these demons? Really, they're fallen angels. They're, they're evil spirits. They were, they were, they're created beings who were created by Jesus to serve Him. And they were in heaven with Him and Lucifer, of course, rebelled and became the devil himself. And these other angels followed that rebellion and they became, they became arch enemies of God and His Word. And so we see a lot of this in New Testament times. There are many New Testament passages that deal with this. Even, even as you get past the Gospels into the ministry of Paul and the book of Acts and the travels of the apostles, they would meet these demon-possessed people. I just want to say to you today that spiritual bondage and spiritual control is still very real. Demon possession is still very real. 
And I'm not going to take the time to prove this to you, but I'm firmly convinced from the study of the Scriptures that a true believer, a true born-again Christian, cannot be possessed with a devil, with a demon, like a lost person can be. It's, it's very clear in the Scriptures. If you're in doubt about that, you ought to study some about that. But they can be influenced. You know, Peter, Peter warned in his writing about, this, about the devil who walks about as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. You know, the devil is so good at what he does, right? He, he's very crafty. He never, he never tells us where he wants us to go, where he wants to lead us. He points out things that would be appetizing, appealing, things that seem enticing, that'll be fun, that'll be, you know, everybody does that. But he never tells you that what his real objective is, is to destroy a life. That's what he always wants to do. Jesus said this in Matthew chapter 10. The thief cometh, but for to steal and to kill and to destroy. That's why he came. Jesus said, I'm come that you might have life and have it more abundant. He's still working, the devil is, and his demons are. And even though believers cannot be possessed, there are many other forms, according to the Bible, of spiritual influence and even bondage that they can bring into our life. We just, we just covered this a few weeks ago when Peter said what he really thought was his wisdom when he said to Jesus, we're not going to let you go into Jerusalem and die. He, he resisted that. He rebuked Jesus. And Jesus looked at him and didn't he say, get thee behind me, Simon Peter. He said, get thee behind me, Satan. Even Peter himself was being influenced in his thinking and his words by the devil. It's very possible for Christians to be influenced by devil, by the devil, by demons, it's very possible, according to the Bible, for a Christian to give a foothold, a place, to the devil in their life. That's why it says in Ephesians, neither give place to the devil. Neither give place. The word place there, the Greek word is topos. It's like topography. It's, like a, it's a term that would have to do with a piece of ground, topographical map. Give no place. What that means is, even as Christians, we can give the devil a little place in our life. He can't possess us, but we can give him a little place in our life. Paul says, neither give place to the devil. In that same epistle, Paul wrote to the Ephesians and said, neither give place to the devil. He talked about our spiritual warfare that we're in, how we need to put on the whole armor of God. Because we're in a spiritual battle. And the more ground, listen young person... If you can give place to the devil, the more ground you give him, the more place he'll have in your life. In your thinking, in your reasoning, in your responses, that's just the way it works. You've heard the adage, it's true in this case, you know, you give him an inch, he'll take a mile. He doesn't want an inch, he wants your life. He wants to ruin your testimony. He wants to steal your joy. He wants to destroy your relationship with your parents or with your husband and your wife and your church. That's the way the devil works, and he still works. Just because a person is not flopping around and foaming at the mouth doesn't mean the devil's not influencing his life. The more ground you give to Satan, the more life of your life he'll occupy. He's a deceiver. 
He's the accuser of the brethren. You know, sometimes when people are critical and accusing, you think, man, how could a person be so unkind? How could a person be so, their words be so venomous? How could they be so toxic? Sometimes it's because they're being influenced by the devil. He puts suicidal thoughts in people's minds. God never led someone to commit suicide. Who is it that tries to influence people to take their own life? What about addictions? What about things that just seem like cannot be, cannot be regained in our life? I'm just telling you, we're talking about the terrible control that evil can have in a person's life. And it's real. It's real. A second thing we see in this passage is not only the terrible control that evil can have, a second thing we see is the challenge of ministering to people. I see this in the life of these disciples. You know, they, these guys did some great things. These, the apostles, these ones sent out by Jesus, they did some great things. Even those three, not the three that went up with Jesus, obviously, but those nine that were down below, they did. They preached. They healed people. They even raised people from the dead. They were equipped and experienced in ministry. Preaching, teaching, healing, casting out devils, that's what they did. Yet they found themselves unable to help this man. Right? It's a challenge ministering to people. You may not have tried that, but try it on for size. It can be challenging. It can be draining. It can be difficult. It can even be frustrating. Sometimes people, this man not a case, but sometimes people, when you give them the truth, they immediately respond to truth. They immediately receive the truth. They just take it. Just like you go to the doctor and the doctor says, you've got this condition, take this medicine, and you'll be better. You take the medicine, you get better. I remember Dr. Dubin. He was my doctor when I was a kid. Mom would take me to see this doctor. His cure for everything was a shot of penicillin. They don't give shots of penicillin anymore, I don't guess. But it cured what ail you. But you know, a lot, of t- a lot of times people don't take the medicine. You say, if you do this, 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 it'll help you. Don't just do it once or twice. That's what the doctor says. Take this once a day for 14 days and you'll be okay. God says, if you'll do this the rest of your life, it'll change your life. Sometimes people don't take the medicine. Other, you know, sometimes people are resistant. They're resistant to the truth. They're resistant to surrender. They don't want to surrender their lives. They want to be better, but they want to hold on to the control of their life. I'm talking about how the devil wants to steal, kill, and destroy, and sometimes it's a challenge to minister to people. People are resistant to obey. They, 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 they want to partially obey, I'm, and we're all like that. And there's spiritual warfare involved in that. There's spiritual bondage involved in that. And by the way, a person has to be want to be free, to be set free. But I just want to tell you today, based on this passage and based on many other things we know, we should not give up on people. It's a challenge ministering to people. It's a challenge. You know, none of us are perfect and none of us always give perfect advice. But again, I think about the doctor sitting by his desk and says, if you do this, I know it will help you. Just take the pill. Just take the pills. 
Of course, nowadays, people won't take anything until they search on the Internet and make sure it's okay. <laughs> Even the doctor said it. That's another sermon. It can be frustrating. It can be challenging. Here were these guys, ordained, commissioned, trained, equipped, empowered by Jesus himself. But they could not help him. So first of all, we see the terrible control that evil can have. Second of all, we see the challenge of ministering to people. But the third thing we see is the possibilities that Jesus provides. Notice the words in verse 22. I want to read them again. The Father said, If thou canst do anything, have compassion on us and help us. By the way, I just want to mention this pronoun, us. The Father didn't just say, have mercy on my Son. He said, have mercy on us. The Son was not the only one suffering. The Dad says, have compassion on us. We've been going through this for a long time. By the way, it's a good reminder that when we let the devil have a foothold in our life, we're probably not the only ones that are going to suffer because of it. And the man says this, the Father says this in verse 22, If thou canst do anything, if there's anything you can do. Now, we don't know all the reasons why he framed his words like this, but this is my thought about it. He had already seen the disciples fail in their attempt to help his son. Right? They had already failed. They had given up. And so now maybe he's questioning if even Jesus could deliver the boy. Because they'd seen the, the disciples fail. I had this thought this morning just thinking about this. You know, you may have seen other Christians fail. You may have seen what you think are good Christians fail. You may have seen me fail. But one thing is certain, you'll never see Jesus fail. All of us may drop the ball sometimes. All of us may find in a situation where we just don't know what to do. But don't give up on Jesus. Jesus replied in verse 23. The man says, I want to look at it again in verse 22. If thou canst do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said unto him, if thou canst believe, all things are possible to him that believeth. So the man says, if you can do anything, have mercy on us. And Jesus said, if you can believe. Jesus didn't take the responsibility off this father. He said, if you can believe, all things are possible to him that believeth. If you can believe, there's nothing outside the realm of possibility. If you can believe. You know, the only one who can help everyone is Jesus. There's nothing he cannot do. And it's still true today. It's still true today. There is no sin that he cannot forgive. There is no sinner that he cannot save. There is no problem that he cannot solve. There is no dark place that he cannot reach. There's no bondage that he cannot break. There's no hurt that he cannot heal. There's nothing he cannot do. There's no burden that he can't lift. There's no vacuum he cannot fill. All things are possible. All things. He wouldn't want us to give up hope. 
Even in the worst of cases, He wouldn't want us to give up hope in our own lives. He wouldn't want us to give up hope in the lives of others. He has more power than all the forces of Satan. On the cross of Calvary, Jesus defeated the enemy once and for all. That does not mean that the devil does not have influence. It does not mean the devil is not active. It does not mean that he has no power. But it means he is a defeated foe. Through his death on the cross, Jesus Christ won the victory. Through his resurrection, he secured the victory. He paid the sin debt on the cross. Every sin that any sinner has ever committed can be forgiven through the cross. He defeated death and the grave. Our victory and our hope is not in ourselves, but it's in our conquering Savior. If thou canst believe, he says, all things are possible to him that believeth. So we see here the great control that evil can have. We see the challenge sometimes of ministering to people. We see the possibilities that Jesus affords. And the last thing I want to notice is this. We see the vital role of faith. If you just take one responsibility that we have out of this lengthy passage and all this, all this discussion and activity, it's this. The vital role of faith. You know, when Jesus first engaged this man in verse 19, he said, he answered him and said, O faithless generation. After he was told that the disciples were not successful in helping this man, he said, O faithless generation. He reprimanded them for their unbelief. Right? By the way, this was not the first time he reprimanded them for their unbelief. And it wasn't the last time. If you had turned to the end of the chapter, and we're not going to do that. He reprimanded them several times after his resurrection for their unbelief. Because when the women went to the tomb and found it empty and went back and told these super saints, these disciples, that Jesus was alive, they didn't believe him. And then later, when two men are on the road to Emmaus, And they're walking along in dejection and Jesus joined them on the road to Emmaus. And finally identified himself. They went directly back to Jerusalem and said, we have seen him. And they didn't believe him. Right? And then he showed up the evening, that very evening. But Thomas wasn't there. And Jesus identified himself to those disciples, but Thomas wasn't there. And later they said, you never believe who showed up. Jesus. He said, I don't believe it. The vital role of faith. You know, even among disciples, unbelief can be a common problem. And this is the important. This is so important because this is the great factor that influences God's work. Listen, it's not just God's ability because all things are possible with Him. It's our faith. It's our trust. In considering anything, whether it's someone who's in bondage like this man, whether it's some other serious issue, the first question is, is it God's will? The second question is, can I trust Him for it? You say, well, preacher, everybody completely trusts him for everything that's God's will. Not always. Not always. 
That's what kept the children of Israel wandering around the wilderness for 40 years. You know why? Because God said, go take the land. But you know what they did? They doubted. Unbelief hinders God's work. Don't just think about this in the realm of the Old Testament wilderness wanderings or in the realm of this group of people dealing with this this troubled father and his child. Think about it in your life. Think about it in our life. The role of faith. It says of Jesus, when he traveled around Galilee, he did not many mighty works there because of their unbelief. Unbelief hindered them. Unbelief stifled God's work. Unbelief prevented more things from happening. If you were to think about, and it is a sin... Unbelief is a sin. If you were to think about the devastating, damaging, debilitating influence of unbelief, you probably need no look no further than just looking in the mirror. God's not looking for people who can do more. He's looking for people who can believe that he can do anything. Anything. There's nothing that God cannot do. Jesus said to this father, If thou canst believe, all things are possible to him that believeth. Now I want you to think about your world today. Just think, just think for a moment about your life. Your family, your job, your finances, your problems, your struggles. What is it that you would like to see God do? What is it that you desperately need to see God do? Can God do that? Could God do that? The answer is all things are possible. Right? Are we trusting him completely to do that? The the, the Bible says this man cried out with tears. Lord, I believe. Help thou mine unbelief. If, If thou canst believe, all things are possible to him that believeth. Lord, I believe. And then this add-on helped my unbelief. I know I don't believe perfectly. I know I don't believe completely. I know I don't, I don't believe like I could believe and should believe, but I do believe. I mean, you see his desperation. I see his, his burden, his urgency, but you also see his faith. I believe. But you also see his doubt. Help my unbelief. I, I want to believe stronger. I believe, but I want to believe stronger. The Bible says, we're not even going to read it, verses 25 and following, that Jesus healed this tormented young man. Now I think it's interesting, and I, I want you to try to focus on that for a moment. This man had faith, but he knew his faith wasn't as complete and pure as it could be. I've been there before. Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. I believe. I'm not saying everything about me believes. I'm not saying I fully, completely, 100% believe. I do believe, but help my unbelief. And you know what? Jesus still answered his request. Aren't you glad about that? You know, our faith doesn't have to be perfect to get answers from Jesus. In verse 28, the disciples, it says when they came into the house, it doesn't say whose house. I'm, I'm assuming it's the house of that Perhaps the house of that man. When he came into his house, the disciples asked him privately, Why could not we cast him out? 
I preach a whole sermon on that, and I'm not going to even deal with that aspect of it because I believe there are some answers in the Bible to that. But why couldn't we do this? What made, it, what made us incapable of doing this? You know, that's a question that disciples ought to ask themselves every once in a while. How come I couldn't do that? How come I couldn't trust Him for that? Was it, because, was it because this man was just too difficult? Was it man that Jesus, was it because Jesus couldn't handle this kind of account? It wasn't that at all, right? Jesus took care of it. And then Jesus answers with this in verse 29. And he said unto them, This kind can come forth by nothing but by prayer and fasting. Now, in the other Gospels, it precedes that statement. By, Jesus said this. Because of your unbelief. He just, the reason is because of your unbelief. And then he says in those other gospels, but this kind can come forth but by nothing but by prayer and fasting. Those two words, think about that, this kind. Talking about this man. This kind. It must, it must mean that this was an exceptionally difficult situation. Wouldn't you agree with that? By the way, this was an exceptionally difficult Difficult situation. This kind. There's some cases, there's some problems, there's some people, there's some situations that are harder than others. I base it on what Jesus, I don't base it on common sense, I base it on the statement. Maybe you've been praying for this kind. Maybe you've been praying for a loved one, you've been praying about a situation. It's, it's one of these kind of situations. And Jesus said, in these cases, there must be times of prayer and fasting. Fasting means we deny ourselves of eating for a period of time to devote ourselves, to devote our hearts, to focus ourselves more upon prayer. We humble ourselves before God. We set aside some of the simple pleasures of life that we could focus on seeking the Lord. You know, sometimes sometimes we pray for things and, and they come about quickly. We've all been there. We pray for something and the answer comes maybe within a day or two or a week or two. Sometimes we prayed for things for weeks and weeks and finally the answer comes. But sometimes it just seems like there's no progress and we think we've done all we know to do. But have we done this? Have we spent time in fasting and prayer? Praying earnestly. Praying with fasting. Praying sincerely. Praying with faith, believing God, all things are possible to him that believes. I love this passage of Scripture for so many reasons. I love it because of what God did in the life of this young man. I love it because of what God did in the life of this father. I love it because of the lesson it is for all of us. Don't give up. God can do anything. God can do anything. But this kind come without by prayer and fasting. And tonight I want you to, I feel like this passage covers so much territory, but I want you to really think about this in your own life. If you're sitting here today and you have no burdens and you have no needs, and, and I don't mean that to be sarcastic, but there's just nothing really weighing on you, then you can't relate to this. But there are people in this room that need a miracle. They need a miracle in somebody's life. They need a miracle in their situation. They need a miracle. They need for God to do something. 
that man cannot do. Man could not fix this person, but God could. And I would urge you today not to give up. To keep praying. To pray with fasting. To keep seeking God. To keep knocking on His door. To keep believing. To say, God, I believe. Help my unbelief. To see God work. Nothing shall be impossible. Aren't you glad about that today? Amen. There are people in this room today, and I promise you, you've been prayed for today. Some of you aren't saved. You've been prayed for today. You think, well, I could never do that. I could never live that life. I'm telling you, nothing shall be impossible. Whatever God's will is, God can do it. Amen? If you're here today and you're not saved, you ought to come to Christ today. God loves you. He can change your life. Religion can't change your life, but He can change your life. He can make you a new person. He can cleanse you of every sin you've ever committed through His own blood. You ought to come to Him today. Amen?